Welcome back to The Daily Brew from the Stanford Daily. Today's episode is a feature of the Stanford Sidecast, which comes from the Stanford Science Podcast course, Power 91JS. Hey, I'm Brenda. And I'm Ruby. And you're listening to the Stanford SciCast. So, Brenda, as you know, this is my first year at Stanford. And while I've been loving meeting all these incredibly interesting people and taking some amazing courses, there's just a lot about Stanford as an institution that I really don't know about. And there's also one event that I'm particularly curious about. Yeah, shoot. Amazing. Well, as we've bonded over the environment with you being an ecology major and also being involved with Fossil Free, and then me planning to go down an Earth Systems track, I'm wondering how much you know about Stanford refusing to divest off of fossil fuels. I know a bunch of stuff went down with a faculty senate meeting and a board of trustees decision last spring, but I'm really interested in knowing more about what happened. Ooh, okay. So I was actually in attendance at that faculty senate meeting. So story time. Um, Last spring quarter, I got an email from Fossil Free Stanford, the student group on campus that's been organizing for years to get the university to divest from fossil fuels. And the email said something like, hey, Fossil Free Stanford needs your support today. The faculty senate is meeting to vote on our resolution in support of divestment. And you can register here. And they'd included these orange Zoom backgrounds because orange is the color of the divestment movement um, with the Fossil Free logo on it and everything. And I wasn't actually a member of Fossil Free at that point, but I tried to show support where I could. So I decided to go to the meeting. I registered. I joined the Zoom. And there was just the sea of orange squares on the screen. I don't remember like exactly how many people were there, but if you were in gallery mode on Zoom, you had to scroll through like seven pages or something to see all of the participants. So I was like, wow, look at all of the support. This is going to be awesome. And the meeting started An ASSU senator made what I thought was a great presentation on why divesting from the fossil fuel industry is so essential and introduced the resolution. Then a few others, like a couple of professors and a board member made presentations for and against the resolution. And then it was time for the faculty to kind of verbally respond and to debate the issue. So I was thinking, cool, this will be easy. These are Stanford faculty. They're so smart. They know how serious climate change is and they care about sustainability. So this resolution is just gonna fly right through here, no problem. And then it didn't pass. Wait, what? Yeah, things started going downhill really fast. Um, There were more faculty members making comments in opposition to the resolution than in support of it. Some of them were also really just like rude and condescending to the ASSU students and the fossil free students who had put so much work into the resolution. And then the vote, it ended up being 11 for, 28 against, and six abstentions. Oh, wow. So it it like really didn't pass. No, not even close. But I thought that Stanford was really committed to sustainability. Like I've heard all of this promotion about the new school of sustainability that they're creating. And also like Stanford shooting for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Yeah, it seems a little contradictory, right? Like what does it mean for Stanford to say that it's so committed to sustainability, but also hold on to fossil fuel investments? There's actually a lot to unpack here. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. Well, 
I want to know everything, so let's get into it. So let's back up a little bit, because I think we need to start by defining divestment. Well, I know like in financial terms, divestment just means like a reduction of an asset. And this can be for many incentives, financial, ethical, political. And that's a very textbook definition, because what I also know is that when people say that we need to divest off of fossil fuels, that means a complete withdrawal from any fossil fuel assets, not just a reduction. So what do people mean when they say that Stanford needs to divest off of fossil fuels? Yeah, so I actually asked that question to a couple of student organizers with Fossil Free Stanford, which is the student group on campus that I mentioned that's been pushing Stanford to divest from fossil fuels. And you'll hear from them directly later, but they basically said there's the financial side where Stanford's endowment would be totally divested from all fossil fuel corporations, um, any corporations involved in oil and gas extraction. And this also includes divesting from mutual funds that have fossil fuel companies in the mix. They also noted that the broader divestment movement isn't just about fossil fuels, it's about divesting from other exploitative industries as well. Um, but Fossil Free has been focusing on more narrow proposals targeting divestment from the top 200 oil and gas companies to start. But beyond this financial side of things, divesting from fossil fuels is also about sending a broader message that continued extraction of fossil fuels is unacceptable and that we don't want to be complicit in the harm done by this extractive and exploitative industry. So when we talk about the harm being done by the fossil fuel industry, we're really talking about being responsible for climate change, right? Yeah, that's at least part of it. So I spoke to Professor Paul Edwards. My name is Paul Edwards. I am a senior research scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, and also a William J. Perry fellow there. He also directs Stanford's Science, Technology, and Society program, and most of his work has been about climate science, the history of climate science. In fact, he's even written about the history of climate science for the upcoming IPCC report. And Professor Edwards also runs the Stanford Existential Risk Initiative. So that's focused on risks to the human future, of which climate change is one. And Professor Edwards talked a little bit about the challenges we're facing with climate change and why it's so important to move off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. You know, the Paris commitments, analysis of those says that if they were all completed exactly as planned, we would still hit about three degrees of warming by the end of this century. That's a lot. So, you know, the goal, the low goal is one and a half degrees. That's already going to mean a great deal of melting, you know, ice melt, sea level rise, and so on. Three degrees will mean sea level rise that would put Shanghai underwater, all of South Florida underwater, Many other coastal cities around the world would be inundated at that level. Uh, San Francisco, the, the San Francisco airport would be underwater. East Palo Alto would be underwater. So, you know, this is, this is a serious commitment that we've already got. And the Paris Agreement does not go far enough to stop it. It also relies on technologies that don't exist. Uh, direct air capture of carbon dioxide on a, you know, an economical and massive scale. That's one of the things that, you know, is sort of in there for future plans that uh, may or may not ever become a reality. So 
we're, we're heading into this just very dangerous place. Another thing that could happen, will happen by the end of this century without some serious action very soon is heat in some parts of the world that would be lethal. So, you know, what that means is that especially areas of the tropics, there would likely be heat waves lasting weeks that would be at temperatures that people could literally not survive in. You know, these are just unacceptable outcomes, and th this is why it's so important to act now and to act decisively and to just move off the fossil fuel path altogether. So obviously from what Paul is saying, we're facing a very stark reality if we keep using fossil fuels. And then beyond the realities of climate change, there's also the fact that oil companies spent years actively misleading the public about it. I think one of the most important things to know is that the fossil fuel companies, and I'm talking especially about the oil companies, but all the fossil fuel companies essentially knew, including the coal industry, that climate change was essentially a foreseeable impact of their products. And they knew this going back decades. That was Ben Franta. My name is Ben Franta. I use he, his pronouns. I am a graduate student at Stanford. I'm in the law school. I'm a JD student there. And I'm a PhD student in the Department of History. I study the history of science. I study what fossil fuel companies knew about climate change in the past up until today, essentially from the 1950s until today. I study their political activities related to climate change, like lobbying and public communication. And in, before this, in the past, I did another PhD in applied physics at Harvard, and I was very involved with the divestment movement there. So what has Ben's research shown? What did oil companies know about climate change? A lot and for a long time. A few years ago, I was working in an archive in um, Wilmington, Delaware, and it had a lot of materials to do with business history in the United States. And one of the documents there was from a conference put together by the American Petroleum Institute, which is the big trade association that represents all the major oil companies in the United States and even some of the oil companies based in other countries. This American Petroleum Institute had a conference and one of the keynote speakers at that conference warned the industry about global warming. And this was all the way back in 1959. So a long time ago, uh, the scientific community knew that CO2 was starting to accumulate in the atmosphere and that fossil fuels were the, the likely source of that, of that pollution and that as a consequence, global warming would probably occur. And so that was all the way back in the 1950s. The oil industry started doing internal research on climate change after that. Uh, by the end of the 60s, this American Petroleum Institute group was doing that. And the industry just kept learning more and more as time went on. It, it even had a secret uh, committee that had representatives from the major oil companies on it, like Exxon, BP, and this committee, the, their whole job was to monitor climate science and assess 
you know, how much global warming would happen and by when, when, what the impacts would be. And that group was put together by the end of the 1970s. So that was also a really long time ago. So we know from original documents that these companies had a very clear understanding of the global warming that their product was going to cause uh, and what the impacts would be. And they had the understanding very sophisticated uh, way by the early 1980s or so. So that's the incredible sort of backstory to, to climate denial. And, you know, once the international community and the United States moved to uh, reduce the usage of fossil fuels, and this was sort of in the late 80s when these policies were put forth in a, in a more bold manner, imminent manner, the industry organized itself to oppose those policies. And one of the ways it did that was by denying the very same facts that it internally knew to be true. So, you know, it's an incredible history. And today I think we, we still see the fossil fuel industry putting forward, I suppose what I would call misleading claims, misleading narrative about its own actions, about climate change, about fossil fuels. I think the industry avoids, nowadays, avoids denying climate science in a really outright way. But still, we see what's called um, greenwashing a lot. We see a lot of claims by the industry that its products are not that bad, that they're sustainable, that you know, it's doing enough to address climate change. And we, you know, now we know also that those claims are factually incorrect because we can, we can see what has to be done in order to limit climate change, for example, through the Paris Agreement. So those companies are out of line with that. And one of the big issues is what do you do with fossil fuel investments? That's one of the reasons why divestment is a central issue in dealing with climate change, I think. Wow. So Ben does a really nice job of laying out these incongruences within the fossil fuel industry and this historic miscommunication and their efforts to hide this terrible stuff that they've known about for a while. And it's why a lot of people are so upset today. And it's also why we need to take a stand now more than ever. I mean, the best time to do something about this was 50 years ago, and the second best time is now. Yeah, exactly. So what is Stanford invested in? How is it tied to fossil fuels? Yes, great question. So based on a statement released by the Board of Trustees last year when they decided not to divest, the Stanford Management Company has reduced its active holdings in energy from 16% of the merged pool to less than 1.5%. And the endowment funds managed by SMC do not include direct holdings in any of the 100 companies that are the subject of the petition by Fossil Free Stanford. At the same time, SMC has increased its sustainable investments to 4% of the merged pool. So that's quoting again from the Board of Trustees statement. Oh, okay. So the university doesn't have any direct holdings in the top 100 gas and oil companies, right? Right. But, and I'm quoting from the Stanford Daily here, the university indirectly invests in the fossil fuel industry through financial instruments such as index funds like the S&P 500. 
So my understanding of finance is very limited. Well, lucky for you, I do know a thing or two about economics. So now it's time for economics with Ruby. So basically the S&P 500 is a conglomeration of the top 500 companies in the stock market and stocks move in and out based on their rankings. So you can't choose which stocks are in this index fund. You just buy into a small share of all of them by investing whatever sum of money you so choose, which in Stanford's case is not a small amount. Hmm, okay, so they can't control the companies in the index fund, but they could invest in a different index fund altogether, right? Yeah, truly, these S&P holdings are not the most ethical choice. They may be traditional and practical, but I feel like Stanford could be a leader and, if we're being honest, likes to be a leader in innovative ideas and initiatives. And so they have funds coming in from this huge array of investments and other assets. So they could take a stand and withdraw their S&P holding, which could then be invested in renewable energy stocks or carbon capture technologies, which they probably already are, but this could just be increasing those amounts. And I know this is all a little confusing, so let's recap. So we have the Stanford Management Company, SMC, which is responsible for managing Stanford's merged pool. Now this merged pool we keep talking about includes the substantial majority of Stanford's investable assets. And Stanford's endowment funds constitute three quarters of the merged pool. So not all of the merged pool is the endowment. Now currently, less than 1.5% of SMC's active holdings are in fossil fuels, which just means that investments in fossil fuels make up less than 1.5% of the merged pool. Yes, though I just want to note here that the current value of Stanford's merged pool is $30.3 billion. So what's 1.5% of $30.3 billion? Let's see. Oh my god. I can't even type 30 billion into the calculator on my phone. It's too many digits. I can't type more than nine digits. Okay. Okay, Google. Help us out here. 1.5% of 30.3 billion is 454.5 million dollars. So over 400 million dollars. That's still a lot of money. A lot of money. Okay, so Stanford still has somewhere around $450 million invested in fossil fuels. And then the university's endowment isn't directly invested in the top 100 oil and gas companies, but it does have these indirect investments through things like index funds, as I previously outlined, meaning that one way or another, this $450 million still gets to these fossil fuel companies. Right, exactly. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Okay, so why doesn't Stanford want to divest? Great question. Let's turn back to the faculty senate meeting I was talking about in the beginning. So this is Zoe Brownwood. Hi, everyone. My name is Zoe. I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. I'm a current junior studying comparative studies in race and ethnicity concentrating in environmental justice. They've been heavily involved in Fossil Free over the past few years um, and said that while the student body is very on board with divestment, the faculty senate was a different story. So something that's really awesome at Stanford is that 
most of the student body really does support divestment from the fossil fuel industry. So we've passed school-wide referendums in the past where we've actually directly voted as students on support for fossil fuel divestment. But honestly, that was like a much easier process than the faculty senate, just because the faculty senate is much more representative of, of, I'd say, like the engineering side of our school and not so much like social sciences and humanities. So we took a similar resolution to the faculty senate. It was introduced, I believe, by Professor David Palumbalu, and it just was totally torn apart and was not passed. We just saw like a lot of, in my mind, ridiculous arguments against why Stanford couldn't divest. We had professors saying, well, we have PhD students and professors who are directly funded by the fossil fuel industry. And if the institution of Stanford takes a stand of that, then we'll lose our funding. And we're like, that is exactly the point. You shouldn't be beholden to these industries. We had people talking about how they drive cars so they don't think that Stanford should divest from fossil fuels. And it's just like a lack of awareness of the systemic level of the issue. So after that totally tanked in the faculty senate, we actually did move it on to the academic council, which is actually much more representative of the humanities and social sciences at Stanford. And it was better supported there, but by that time, the board had already made its decision not to divest. So that was pretty devastating. I think that we were like actually pretty hopeful. It obviously wasn't a given in the same way that the ASSU resolution was, but I think especially being there and hearing what people's objections were was really just terrifying to like hear what faculty at our own school think is the best course of action in terms of addressing climate change. And I just like, I just heard a lot of complacency and a lot of self-interest in that meeting. I think that we, we were definitely surprised by the outcome. So it sounds like some of the hesitancy to divest comes from this fear of just pissing off the fossil fuel industry and losing funding. I mean, that seems like a really flawed and problematic argument, don't you think? Yeah, though Professor Edwards did say that there could be some gray area. He said that, yes, there are some faculty who have a vested interest in fossil fuel funding, but... I've got to say right up front that not all of that is for sort of evil purposes. I have colleagues who are very much on the side of uh, wanting to act swiftly and decisively on climate change who take money from fossil fuel companies to do things like research on how that product, you know, petroleum could be used in other ways, such as to make construction materials that would then fix that carbon permanently and instead of burning it and making carbon dioxide. So, you know, I'm not necessarily against the use of fossil fuel funding for purposes like that. But I think it is symbolically so important to get away from the fossil fuel economy that we must divest our massive uh, endowments from those funds. And Ruby, you also mentioned earlier that Stanford is creating this new school of sustainability. They announced this last year. 
And Professor Edwards says, I think it would be appalling if the endowment that uh, supports the School of Sustainability or whatever it's going to be called, I think it would be appalling if that came from fossil fuel money, if there were you know, naming opportunities for Exxon or Shell or something like that on campus. It's just completely inappropriate to have fossil fuel funding at the base of that institution. And I've expressed that view in a number of conversations about the School of Sustainability when we've had meetings about it. And, you know, I've had colleagues I greatly respect disagree with that viewpoint, but that's what I think, and I'm going to stand by that. It's maybe a different matter if individual faculty were to get funding for specific projects from those sources. And, you know, I just mentioned one kind of thing that people take money for that might be a useful way of getting that industry out from under its own commitments. I mean, you know, this is their big problem and fossil fuel companies are a huge part of the global economy. But I would want a school of sustainability to have a mechanism, you know, a review board or something that was very careful about what sort of funding was being delivered, you know, how that the symbol that that creates would be used outside the university. One of the things I see all the time now are ExxonMobil in particular puts ads on NPR and in other places about how it's contributing to solutions like carbon capture and storage. And, you know, I said it's just so unbelievably disingenuous given their history. So I would really not want to see the Stanford name on some project that claims to be uh, trying to help with climate change when it's really just a cover for, you know, continuing to create carbon dioxide and put it into the atmosphere. But wait, isn't the new school actually considering allowing donations from fossil fuel companies? Well, they haven't said that they aren't. That's why Fossil Free is currently actually working on a campaign around this. This is Kunal Sinha. I am Kunal Sinha. I use he, him pronouns. I'm in the class of 2024, meaning I'm a freshman. He's another organizer with Fossil Free Stanford, and he mentioned that this issue of research funding kind of spurred Fossil Free's work on this campaign. Stanford is creating the new School of Sustainability, and our new campaign is essentially asking MTL and the administration uh, not to accept gifts and sponsorships from fossil fuel companies. So just to give a bit of context, Traditionally, fossil-free Stanford has been really focused on divesting from fossil fuels. Those, as you know, did not go through because they faced a lot of resistance from faculty senators and, you know, general figures in the administration. One of the big points of contention that came up was that the fossil fuel industry was an important partner for the university, and that if we try to sever our ties with the industry or make any sort of statements that upset them, that there's the risk that they would pull out research funding and that would jeopardize the careers of many, you know, professors doing research and graduate students. And that was a big fear that actually came up and it didn't just come up once. And that sort of got us thinking that, you know, it's very difficult for Stanford to pursue the aggressive measures necessary as long as they are financially dependent on the industry for funding. So I think that was our first big concern that really got us looking into this issue. 
concern that always comes up is the issue of academic freedom, that professors should be allowed to accept money from whoever they want and the university shouldn't be barring specific sources. And we are pretty open to that line of reasoning, uh, which is why our current push is only focusing on gifts and sponsorships, meaning if a professor really needs money from ExxonMobil for a specific project they're working on, they are still free to do so. But it's just that on the administration level, the school is not going to be accepting, again, gifts or sponsorships to the school as a whole. And the ability to accept gift and sponsorships like that, that is MTL's responsibility, which is why all of our requests are, are addressed to MTL. So, so far as part of this campaign, they've drafted an open letter. And we sent, we sent that to MTL, uh, essentially asking him, again, not to accept gifts or donations from the fossil fuel industry and laying out our rationale. After that, we had the chance to meet with Steve Graham and Cam Muller, who are some of the people that are leading the push for the new school sustainability and organizing that. And we spoke to them face-to-face about our concerns. But I think the bottom line is they're, as expected, not really on board yet. So what we're focusing on now is just amassing public support, or I guess support among the university, among students and faculty and alumni. We created a petition that we're sending out to people. And in addition to that, we are also trying to get support from faculty and specifically get uh, testimonials from faculty. So sounds like Kunal and Professor Edwards are pretty much on the same page here. So why does the School of Sustainability say it doesn't want to reject fossil fuel donations? Yeah, so Kunal mentioned that he met with Stephen Graham and Cam Moeller, who have been planning the new school. Dean Graham and Dean Moeller actually did an interview with the Stanford Daily for their podcast, The Daily Brew, earlier this quarter. And here's what Dean Moeller had to say when asked if the administration would consider accepting donations from the fossil fuel industry. How is the school going to be funded? Uh, And will the administration consider accepting donations from the fossil fuel industry or other unsustainable companies? We will uh, not refuse funding from fossil fuel companies as as a point of principle. You know, there's some some funding that may be taken and some funding that may not be taken. Um, But we certainly hope to rely on many other sources of funding and not to be reliant on the fossil fuel industry. Um, It's true that fossil fuel usage has been disastrous for the environment um, and um, It's important to recognize that at least some fossil fuel companies have realized that if they want to stay profitable, they need to find greener ways of providing energy and that technologies developed by Stanford can play a critical role in that transition. Um, It's also important to realize that energy research is expensive and it isn't necessarily funded through other channels. Um, And it's really important for this work to happen with enough funding in order to let the work be successful. Hmm, so what Dean Muller is saying is that A, fossil fuel companies need our help to make them more sustainable and B, that Stanford can't get funding otherwise. I mean, is that really true? Do we know what other experts say about this? Mm -hmm. Here's Ben's take. Yeah, I think they're both extremely flawed. You know, the first, which is that some oil companies are 
are essentially the solution to climate change or trying to transition, uh, there's very little basis in fact for that, that argument. It's, you know, it's been a common argument for decades. I remember when, back when I was at Harvard campaigning for divestment there, we were talking to some of the trustees and one of the trustees told us, and I believe she believed this fully in a, in a wholehearted way, that instead of divesting from oil companies, we should write thank you notes to the good ones. And in her mind, BP was one of the good ones. So we should write thank you notes to BP rather than divesting from the industry. And it, it really brought home to me just how it's an actual truly deep uh, lack of knowledge and a deep ignorance about the actual activities of the industry that is very, very common within decision makers, you know, at a, in elite institutions throughout society, you know, places like Stanford. So thankfully in the last few years, there's been a lot more research done on what these companies are actually doing. So quantifying how much money are they spending in renewables compared to fossil fuels? What are their lobbying expenditures like? And what are they doing with those? And so on. And you know, I mean, it doesn't look good for the industry. They're doing very, very little in renewables. One can even look at their shareholder reports and see that, no, they're not, they're not moving in that direction in a significant way. And even just today, there was a major case in um, the Netherlands uh, where Shell, the oil company, which is based in the Netherlands, Shell was sued because it, its business plans were not aligned with the Paris Agreement. And the court actually ordered Shell to change its business plans. The court said Shell has to align them with the Paris Agreement as a matter of human rights and sort of corporate responsibility. And Shell said they're going to appeal that. They're not, they don't want to do that. You know, that is not their current plan. And they're they're actually fighting against, you know, even a court order to do that. So you know, that, that first argument that there are some oil companies that are sustainable or moving in a sustainable direction in a significant way, it's just not based in fact. So, you know, we have to challenge these assertions and, you know, verify them and, and challenge them if they're wrong. And, you know, the other one, that's a very interesting argument. And, you know, I think that's going to be an interesting one to kind of hash out uh, you know, if someone came to us and said, you know, cancer research is really important, but we have to have the tobacco industry funded, you know, just nobody else has the money to do it. Nobody else cares about cancer. Nobody else cares about public health. I mean, we would, I think, laugh at that argument because, you know, one, we know that we don't need the tobacco industry to have public health science as like a field of study that exists that lots of other groups are also interested in that and that it can be you know, funded just fine without it. And of course, if you have the tobacco industry funding public health science, you're gonna get a lot of conflicts of interest and that's gonna influence the scientists, it's gonna influence what gets funded. And this we know because it actually happened historically for a long time, the tobacco industry was funding a lot of public health science and it wasn't, fraudulent science, but it was focused in particular areas that didn't threaten the industry. And 
you know, we know that conflict exists with, with oil and, and climate and energy research. So we should be concerned. And I think that the argument that sort of no one else cares about climate change, um, no one else really cares about saving the world from climate change. And so we have to have the oil companies fund it. I mean, I think it's wrong. We will see in due time that it is in fact wrong, but of course it has to be, it has to be addressed head on and, and overcome. And it kind of relates to a bigger issue that I think is hard for some people in the scientific community to see at least right away, that in solving societal problems like climate change, it's not just how much money is spent on research. What also matters, maybe even more, is where that money goes, what is actually focused on and what is ignored. And that is the real, that is the dominant funding effect. Um, you know, we saw at the, the Stanford faculty meeting that there was another funding effect where psychologically the, the faculty were afraid to take a stand against the oil industry. That is definitely an effect. And, you know, that's been documented in psychological research and things like that. If you give people money, they're gonna generally be more favorable to you. But there is another effect, which is the selective funding effect, where certain areas are funded and other areas are not funded. And it doesn't require anybody to be like obviously corrupt. It doesn't require any fake research to be produced. It's more at the upstream level, just what gets supported and what doesn't get supported. You know, I mean, uh, just to take an example, I don't see Exxon Mobil funding a lot of social science research on its own lobbying activities, for example, even though that is very important for solving the problem of climate change. Uh, I haven't seen Exxon Mobil funding a lot of research to do with how do you attribute extreme weather events to the company's products or to climate change in general. I don't see them funding a lot of that, even though that's also very important. I see Exxon funding a lot of interesting science, but it's often a lot of science that does not threaten the fossil fuel industry, or it can in fact help them. You know, for example, carbon capture and sequestration research that if it succeeds would help the industry. And even if it doesn't succeed, these companies can say, look, we're funding the research. So you know, don't be mad at us or we're working on solutions. So, you know, there, there are a lot of funding effects to unpack. And I think the big, the sort of the, the takeaway message is that all of this arises from the conflict of interest between solving climate change, which requires a replacement of fossil fuels on the biggest scale possible and having that research and activity funded by the, the very same companies that are making the fossil fuels that's an obvious conflict of interest so i think it's gonna <laughs> that's gonna be the issue that one of them that's gonna dominate i think yeah in the next few years so it sounds like all these people still think divestment and refusing fossil fuel donations is really important. But, you know, we've mentioned that the board made a decision last year not to divest. And in the statement they released, it looks like they also said that they're committing to net zero emissions by 2050. 
And we also know that Stanford's creating this whole new school of sustainability. So why isn't that enough? Like, why do they need to, on top of all of this other stuff, still divest and refuse fossil fuel money? Yeah, great question. I mean, the answer is a lot of reasons, like all of the reasons. So Kanal and Zoe, for instance, they both talked about the importance of divestment as a political statement. Here's Kunal. Yeah, that is a question we get a lot from people who you know, say that Stanford is already doing a lot to reduce its emissions. So why should we push for anything further? I think what I would say to that is all of these initiatives that you've talked about are just focusing on the Stanford campus itself, how we can cut emissions. But it's neglecting, I think, the bigger picture. Because if Stanford really wants to pursue decarbonization and ensure we can meet the IPCC's targets, it's not sufficient just to cut our own emissions on campus and then sit down and say we're done. Again, Stanford is one of the most influential institutions in the country, one of the largest research universities in the country. So it has enormous clout and you know, a really enormous ability to shape public discourse. I, I think there's a lot of people in Stanford, um, and I don't blame them for thinking this, but they think it's their job just to, to try to solve climate change purely on a technical level. Like we're going to devote the, you know, brain power and the financial resources to getting the technology right. And then we're going to try to stay out of politics and stay out of public discourse. But I really think that's, first of all, that's not possible. And second of all, if you are a major institution like this, you do have a responsibility because the types of statements that you make and the messages that you send out, again, are are very important at shaping how the public views these issues. And this is Zoe. That was something that I like really had to reckon with my freshman year because I think I chose Stanford in some ways because because of its sustainability initiatives. But I think that like Stanford often uses the research it's doing as like a shield for participating in greater institutional and systemic change. We saw this with the faculty senate. Defending participation in these systems for the like furthering of academic pursuits. Stanford likes to position itself as this generator of knowledge and like that is our sole purpose. But with an endowment of, I think it's over $30 billion now, that is not the sole purpose of Stanford. $30 billion is so much money. And even a small percentage of that is significant. And so like Stanford, which is a really influential, powerful institution in our country, taking a stance on the funding of fossil fuel companies, could have really long-lasting and important effects on the movement as a whole, the movement for climate justice. Whereas maybe they're saying like, oh, we're doing a gradual approach, but the point of it isn't necessarily just to pull funding out from under these companies, because it's true, stocks will get bought up by someone else. But the major point of it is divestment as a political tool to take away the credibility of these corporations, especially since they've spent decades building their image up as being the saviors of the planet. But they really have spent millions of dollars making climate change about the individual and about individual actions, and also placing themselves at the center of the solution, whereas they aren't actually doing anything to transition away 
from fossil fuels, they are actively exploring and extracting new reserves. So sounds like Stanford needs to harness its power as a leading institution, because if a prestigious institution like Stanford divests, others will too. Yeah, and what Kunal and Zoe say about divestment changing political discourse, there's actually some studies that talk about this. For instance, there's a paper by Noam Bergman that was published in the journal Sustainability in 2018, which talks about these indirect impacts of divestment campaigns. So quoting from the paper, divestment has put questions of finance and climate change on the agenda and played a part in changing discourse around the legitimacy, reputation, and viability of the fossil fuel industry. You know, I think it's really cool to see this shift in social and political discourse because Traditionally in the finance world, it matters way less of what stocks you own and more so, do they make you money or not? And I think that's highly problematic because yes, of course I want my stocks to make me money, but I don't wanna sacrifice the planet or public health at the expense. Exactly. And then Ben talked about the importance of divestment from a scientific standpoint as well. And he actually told this to the board when he testified to them in support of divestment a couple of years ago. My message to them was that it sort of doesn't doesn't matter or how they feel about it in a political way doesn't change the scientific fact that if we as a world want to accomplish the climate goals that were agreed to in the Paris Agreement, for example, so I'm talking about limiting global warming to one and a half or two degrees Celsius, if we want to achieve that, then institutions have to stop investing in fossil fuels just as a matter of fact and that is true uh the international energy agency for example they just came out with a big report in the last few weeks they're a very authoritative body on world energy and they also found that investing in fossil fuels at this point in time is inconsistent with limiting global warming to those levels that, that I just mentioned. So that, that fact will not change. And in fact, it's only going to get worse as time passes, the inconsistency that comes with investing in fossil fuels. Complete divestment is important because complete divestment is required to halt climate change, you know, as quickly as possible. And, you know, in accordance to the very same goals that Stanford says it supports. You know, it doesn't make sense for Stanford to do all of this, um, you know, replacing its own electricity with clean sources, which is good. Stanford is doing that and should keep doing that. But at the same time, investing in fossil fuels when as a whole, Stanford is probably much more significant as an investor than it is as a as a consumer, given the, the wealth of the institution. So it's sort of um, <laughs> sort of like, you know, why is completely stopping smoking <laughs> necessary to save your health instead of like, well, I've cut back to half a pack a day. Well, that is good if you were doing more before that, but getting completely off is the best. And, you know, Stanford should be a leader on this. They shouldn't be in the back of the pack. They should be at the front of the pack and they should be proud to take a bold action to, you know, save the future of the planet and to help out their own students and to help civilization as a whole. Those are things that Stanford should be proud to do, not 
be afraid to do. Wow, that was really impactful. And I really liked the way that Ben brought the smoking analogy into this because when smoking was popular in like the 40s, doctors actually recommended it. And obviously now we know the terrible things associated with it, like lung cancer. And I feel like the sentiment can be connected to fossil fuels. Like we once thought that oil and natural gas were the best things ever, but now we see the harm being done by them and we need to cut them out of our lives. And just how smoking was a public health crisis, fossil fuel combustion is both a public health crisis and a planetary health crisis. Yeah, that's a really good point. I also thought that what he said about Stanford being more significant as an investor than a consumer was really key. And that brings us finally to the financial view. You know, frankly, I think it would be a good financial deal for Stanford to do that. I mean, the the stock prices of these companies are starting to tank because there is so much action on this. We just had news about this over the last couple of days, you know, a couple of climate activists or more activist investors got put onto Exxon's board through shareholder action. Uh, Shell got a devastating verdict in a Dutch lawsuit uh, where the court ordered it to basically come through on its claims to be reducing emissions and said it's got to cut them in half. You know, this is going to, these kinds of things are going to keep happening because these are not products that we should be continuing to use and sell. And a university like this has a mission to lead for the future. So divesting from those investments now would be beneficial financially and it would be beneficial symbolically. So I think we have to do it. Many other universities have taken that step. It's incredible to me that, that one like this that claims to be a leader has not done that already. One of the themes that was repeatedly announced to me when I came back to Stanford in, in 2017 was that you know, Stanford is the best. And if we're going to be the best, you know, what are we the best at? And one of those things ought to be preserving a thriving future for the human race. We're not on that path right now. We're on a path to several degrees of global warming, to uninhabitable areas of the globe by the end of this century, if we don't move quickly. So it seems to me that any university that claims to understand the world and to uh, want to make better lives for people ought to be committed to that mission. I think Paul is right in all this because the more we invest in renewables and build up this infrastructure, the less of a commodity fossil fuels become. I mean, it's roughly basic supply and demand with big policy initiatives too. Like I'd hate to be the one invested in Exxon and BP when the government decides to cut its gas and oil subsidies. Yeah, exactly. So there's like all these different pieces. Divestment just makes sense ethically, scientifically, financially, politically, socially. There's kind of a place for everyone in this movement. Yeah. So what can I do then as a Stanford student to support divestment? And what can others do as well? I think a lot of listeners would like to see this change. Yeah. So Zoe and Kunal had a few suggestions. Here's Kunal. I would say uh, the number one thing to support our current campaign is just to sign our petition. We're targeting a thousand signatures. Make sure you send it to at least three of your friends, either through text or email or, I don't know, WhatsApp or whatever you use. 
We're also looking for people who are interested in joining Fossil Free Stanford. And I think maybe perhaps the simplest thing you can do is just talk to people about it. I mean, that's really the simplest thing you can do. And here's Zoe. I think the student pressure and faculty pressure is a really key component because we can be meeting with board, but if we don't have the support of the Stanford community, what we're saying needs to be done doesn't have a lot of weight behind it. But we like value the student body at large and the voices of the students who have been fighting for this for years, who have been supporting our campaign. This is one of the longest standing campaigns at Stanford. Sometimes it does feel, it feels like most student activism, a lot of the time it feels like you're like banging your head against a wall. And I think most groups find this, that Stanford really will just like refuse to listen to what students are asking for. So that's why like the, the power in numbers is so important. So I guess me as an emerging Stanford student, I can sign this fossil free petition and share it with friends and honestly join fossil free if I'm interested. Yep. And um, if anyone in admin is listening, Ben had some broader suggestions as well. You know, I think Stanford, they should do a lot of things. I mean, they should, they should divest from fossil fuel producers as a first step. You know, if Stanford wants to try to use its investment power to influence certain companies as an investor, there are a lot of ways to do that. For example, in the power utility industry, which presumably will still exist, but hopefully will be cleaner. Stanford can use its investing power, its shareholder power in that capacity. That logically makes sense. You know, Stanford should continue to source its electricity from clean energy sources. And, you know, Stanford, of course, does education and research. They should expand their portfolio of energy and climate research. You know, I mean, this is a little bit uh, selfish of me to say, but I think there should be way more social science research uh, related to climate change. You know, right now, climate change is a huge political issue. A lot of the opposition to action is political in nature. And so we need that social science research to address all of those questions, you know, and that's not expensive research to support. So Stanford could, could do that as well. So I think there's like, a, there's a lot of different things that Stanford could do and divestment should be a no brainer. I mean, it's, and, and I think it's a matter of time before they do. Wow. That was a really strong sentiment. And I really do think it's only a matter of time, but not without social pressure. And I think that we've seen a lot of similar patterns to this historically and in a lot of other social movements. Yeah, definitely. I think we can all play a part here for sure. And I just want to leave listeners with some last words of hope from Ben. I think one of the big takeaways that I've started to see lately is that, you know, for years, people have argued about who's responsible for climate change. And you know, I think what we're seeing is that every kind of institution needs to take responsibility in their own way. So, for example, you know, I mentioned this case in the Netherlands against Shell, the oil company. You know, the court said Shell as a corporation has a responsibility as an oil producer to change, you know, the way it does business. 
And a few years ago, this, the very same court told the government of the Netherlands, the government also has a responsibility to its own citizens, to the world, to you know, make policies to deal with climate change. And now we're starting to see similar realizations from the investment community that if you're a big investor, and this includes Stanford, then you also have a responsibility to change the way that you invest to deal with this problem. Every institution, every company, every government, every person has a role to play. And, and just as you know, we're working on this and some of us, some people dedicating their careers to this, Stanford you know, should also take responsibility and play its own part. And, and that as an educator, as an investor, um, as a public leader. Just speaking kind of candidly, you know, all of this, everything that Stanford has done is, is because the students pushed it to do that, you know, along with the other supporters of the campaign, but the sort of driving force being the students primarily you know, that's how change gets made. Um, sometimes it is hard to be an activist because you're fighting against power a lot. And sometimes it's like, it just feels unfair that even if you are like factually right and you're, <laughs> and you have the truth on your side and like doing good on your side, like some people in power just won't change. And that can be frustrating, but that is also exactly how the world changes is by people pushing for it and organizing themselves you know to be to to have influence and you know so of course of course things change because things always change and things never stay the same at least not indefinitely It's us again, and we couldn't leave you without some quick thank yous. Yeah, thank you to all of our wonderful interviewees, Zoe Brownwood and Kunal Sinha from Fossil Free, Dr. Paul Edwards, and Dr. Ben Franta. All very cool humans. Go check out Fossil Free's open letter and their petition, both linked in the show notes. We'll also drop some links to some of the articles that Ben has written about what the fossil fuel industry knew about climate change decades before the rest of us. They're really interesting. Go check them out. And thank you to The Daily Brew for letting us use a clip from their interview with Stephen Graham and Cam Moeller. You can listen to the full episode linked as well in the show notes. Thank you to Professor Jennifer Stoniker, who is the entire reason I think that the Stanford Science Podcast exists. This episode was produced and edited by Ruby and Brenda. Interviews were conducted by Ruby and Brenda. And your hosts were Ruby and Brenda. Thanks for listening.